Thanks for joining us for today's sermon on the Brick Church Sermon Podcast. My name is Jared Callahan, and I'm the lead pastor here at the Brick, and we're so excited that you're going to check out today's message. Our prayer is that each week the message inspires you, challenges you, and helps you connect to God, maybe in a brand new way. We also pray that you connect with us as a community, that it doesn't stop just with your connection with God, but it gives you an opportunity to connect with the people at the Brick Church. So don't hesitate to reach out. Let's jump into today's message. All right, so if you're new with us, we are in a series called Back to John, um, but do not worry, you don't have to be caught up, but what we're doing is taking verse by, a verse by verse look at the gospel of John, and uh, we're breaking down some history, some context, we'll get nerdy for just a second, but the ultimate goal of what we're doing is figuring out how to apply it. What does it look like to live different based on what we read in scripture and what Jesus is saying to us? So that's what we're going to do today, is look at some applications. So to catch you up where we're at, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 7, but in John 6 last week... Um, we saw Jesus get a little bit more difficult in his teaching. He starts to kind of disperse the crowd. The uh, people who would call themselves uh, their, uh, disciples of Jesus decided to not be his disciples anymore. Not the 12 he selected, but some other followers in, in John 6. They, they saw the, the feeding of the 5,000 like what he did. They liked the miracle, but then really didn't like his teaching. His teaching got too difficult for them. So then they, they kind of jumped ship and they disperse. And so we're going to catch up on that moment, what takes place after in John chapter 7. Uh, John chapter 7, there's a big feast that's taking place in Jerusalem, and so that's what uh, we're going to see where his brothers, it's Jesus's half-brothers, um, have some suggestions for him. Here's what happens in John chapter 7, verses 3 through 6. It says, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world." For even his own brothers did not believe him. Jesus' brothers show up, they give him advice, and we find out their advice is not because they believe in him. They've got something to say, hey, Jesus, let's, let's go get this thing going. Let, go to that festival and win your disciples back. All, right? All the disciples that left you, go. Don't do this in private. This is our advice, just go get it done. But then we find out they don't believe in him. So the advice sounds more like, hey, get this over with. Let's just be done with what you're doing because we don't really believe in what you're saying. We don't believe in who you are. We don't believe in what you're going to do. Just go get it over with. If you really want to be a prophet or the Messiah, just go show the world who you are and get it done because we don't believe in you. And what I want you to see here is the implications of what it means for Jesus to be rejected by his own brothers. See, these are his half brothers. These are, these are people that grew up in his household and he's the big brother. He's the big brother. And the little brothers are going to show up and be like, hey, we don't, we don't believe in you. We don't believe in what you're doing. We don't believe in what you're going to do. I don't, what we find about Jesus um, in Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that he is a, a high priest. He calls him high priest, which basically means an advocate between us and the father, right? He's an advocate for us. And he goes to God and he's like, hey, this is what it's like to be human. And it says that he is tempted in every way. And the way I read that, the way I understand Jesus being tempted in every way is not every specific temptation, but he is fully human. He knows what every temptation fully feels like. He doesn't get out of a, a, a get out of jail free card. So when you see Jesus in these scriptures experiencing rejection, it's not easy for him. I don't, it's not like he's like, well, I'm God. So who cares what you think, half brothers? You, you go to your father, Joseph. I'll go to my heavenly father who is, you know, God. So just get out of here. No, no, no. He, he experiences rejection the same way we do. He doesn't get out of jail free card. He doesn't get to escape what humanity feels like. He feels all the same feelings we do. 
So he's been on a tour of rejection up to this point, right? Over and over again, he keeps doing good works. He keeps loving people, but the religious leaders reject him. His own disciples reject him. And now his own half-brothers are like, no, we don't. We don't believe in you. We don't believe in what you're going to do. Right. And, and I don't know what it's like to be the oldest. All right. I'm, I'm any oldest siblings in here. All right. We got a few. We got a few. Uh, it feels like our society, maybe every society in history, puts some expectations on the oldest sibling. You're the one that's supposed to set the tone. You're the one that the younger siblings are supposed to look up to. I'm the youngest, right? Y'all don't like us. It's totally fine, but that's okay because everybody else does, right? We're the favorites. That's what happens. We get treated like babies. And that's when we live it up. Um, but we look up to our older siblings. I look up to my brother. I admire my brother. I respect my brother. And I can't even imagine what it would look like to look my brother in the eye and let him know I didn't believe in him. Like I feel for him in that moment if I were to ever convey that emotion because it's just not true, first off, but because I've been with him. I've seen him and I can trust him. I've, I've experienced life with my brother and know if he says he can do something, he can do it because he's that kind of person. He's got that kind of character. And yet Jesus, the oldest brother, the one that all this prophecy is about, the one their family knows that he's got something to do. They're like, we actually have seen you. We've been with you and we don't believe you. It's one thing to be rejected by all the leaders. It's one thing to be rejected by your followers. It's another thing to be rejected by those closest to you. And Jesus experiences that kind of rejection. There's an interesting implication in that too. For me, the way I read that, if I read a little bit deeper into what's taking place, if they don't believe in him, I would argue they must not believe in the story about him. Meaning that growing up, they heard that their, their mom, uh, gave birth to Jesus, who was the son of God. And it was immaculate conception. And they don't believe that story, which means they believe the story that their brother is an illegitimate son. And, and I, that's, that's normalized now. And I'm glad that we treat people with respect, no matter who their parents were. But in their culture, you're an outcast. If you're an illegitimate child, you're not born inside of the, of the marriage. You are an illegitimate child and you are basically an outcast. Jesus could never be all like full, fulfill all of his potential being the outcast, uh, an illegitimate child. Maybe the whole family, maybe the brothers had to experience what it was like to be in a family of outcasts, all because their big brother had a story that was told about him. All because we have, we have to experience life as outcasts in our community because you have a story that our mom told about you that must not be true because we don't believe in you. So Jesus is feeling all of this rejection. Jesus is feeling all of these moments of what his little brothers don't even believe in him. Not just his disciples, not just the religious leaders, but the little brothers. And I believe he feels that. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53. And this is a prophecy about Jesus. Isaiah 53 verses four through six it says, surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus experiences the rejection just like us. He experiences our rejection. He experiences our emotion. So when, when Psalm 34, 18 tells us that he is near the brokenhearted, I don't think it's just saying proximity-wise. I don't think it's that Jesus is just close to us when we're brokenhearted, when we get the diagnosis, when, when we, we, we have a miscarriage, when uh, the, the, the family member dies that shouldn't have died, when the finances fall apart, when the marriage falls apart, when the kids run astray, all of those things that leave us brokenhearted and hurting and lost and confused. 
I don't think it's just that he's near us physically. I think he's near us emotionally. I think he feels what we feel. I think he weeps when we weep. I think he's, he's heartbroken when we feel the pain and the suffering because he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be human and experience it and to look at his brothers and have them say to him, we don't believe in you, man. You pretty much ruined our life. We're probably all outcasts because of your illegitimate birth. We, we can't even be the same in the synagogue. We can't go and be trained up by rabbis the right way because we are a family of outcasts. At least Jesus for sure can't be trained up by a rabbi in a traditional sense. He's never going to be the star pupil. He can never be the, the best one in the class because we know how he got here. We know what Mary did. Even if she don't want to admit it, we know what Mary did. Immaculate conception. Come on, Mary, tell the truth. Tell us what really happened. That's the story. That's the story that I think the brothers believe about him. And so then in John uh, chapter seven, Jesus continues on to go to the festival. The, the brother, the, his brothers are like, go to the festival. He's like, I'm not, I'm not going right now. And he goes about halfway through the festival and then continues a tour of rejection. They're like, who, who from Galilee? You, you are uneducated. Who taught you what, you what you knew? He's like proving to them in scripture over and over again, all of these things. And he's expressing all these beliefs. He's showing them with miracles. And they're still like, nothing good comes from Galilee. This guy can't be who he says he is. This guy can't be anything significant. More rejection over and over and over again. Jesus is rejected and rejected. And he's trying to let them know, here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. He's experiencing rejection. And so today, um, when we see his rejection, uh, we, might, we might empathize with it because all of us at some point in our life have been rejected. See, we have, this, we have this ability or we have this decision to make about our rejection. What do we do with it? Many of us, like the natural response for rejection is to find a way to not ever experience it again, right? The natural response is to be like, listen, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be rejected. So if I have to speak a certain way in certain groups of people so I don't get rejected, I'll do that. Even if it means I got to be the mean girl, or even if it means I got to gossip and I got to talk trash about other people, I just want to fit in. I don't have to actually say the words. I just won't speak up an objection because I need to fit in because I know what rejection feels like. So I'll avoid it at all costs. Or we harden our hearts and act like it doesn't matter and pretend that we didn't care, that we didn't really need it. We don't really need that community. We didn't like them anyways. I don't really want them as Facebook friends. I don't really want to follow them on Instagram. Forget them anyways. We harden our hearts and, and back off. And Jesus goes a different route. Jesus, with his rejection, doesn't harden his heart, doesn't fit in with the crowd. Jesus goes a different route. And I think that's what we're going to see in John 8. So we're going to take a look at John 8. And I want you to see John 8 with the backdrop of John 7. I want you to see John 8 in the moment that we're going to read about, which is called the woman caught in the act of adultery. It's a story about her, but I want you to read her story with the backdrop of knowing Jesus has been rejected too. The emotional experience of his rejection and how he responds to her rejection in this story. And so we're going to catch up in uh, John chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. It says, Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Okay, so this is an interesting scene and there's a lot taking place. First thing I want you to notice is that the, scri the scribes and the Pharisees are together. Scribes and the Pharisees overlap very slightly. There are some Pharisees that are some scribes, but in general, they are two distinct separate groups that don't really like each other. They disagree. But there is nothing better at bringing us together than common hatred. 
right? We just, all we need is one thing to hate together. We just join forces. We're like, no, I don't like you, but I like you better than that person. So we're on the same team, right? That's, that's what the scribes and Pharisees are doing. So now they've joined forces. Jesus has brought unity uh, for his enemies, basically. And now they, they're together like, all right, let's get, this guy is, is stirring the pot. We don't like it. We want to reject him. We don't want him leading us. So how do we get him? And they come up, honestly, a brilliant test. It really is a smart test because here's what, here's the test. If he partakes and he, he agrees because they're kind of setting him up as judge. And if he partakes as judge, he's in a dangerous position as the judge because now he's got to decide, do I fulfill the law of Moses and let this woman be stoned to death, which the law requires? Or on the flip side, which is kind of, you may not know this historically, if I choose to do that, then now I'm in trouble with the Roman Empire. On the one hand, I can please the, the Jewish leaders by allowing this thing to happen or engaging in this so that it does happen or just washing my hands of it so that it does happen so that I can still stay in the good graces of the Jewish leaders. But if I do that, if I partake in her dying, then now I'm in trouble by the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire has decided that the Jewish leaders cannot perform capital punishment. They can't kill anybody. The, the Roman Empire was brilliant in the way that they led. Like they, for, for a lot of years, they crushed it. They would just go to a country, overtake them. And like, listen, here's what you can do. You can have all the religion you want. We don't care what religion you believe. The only thing you need to do is say Caesar is king, pay your taxes, and don't kill nobody. It was as simple as that. And the the, the was like, well, that, that seems pretty easy because the other option to that is for you to kill us all. So yeah, we'll take that. Well, Caesar is king. We get our own religion and we'll pay our taxes. We're good with that. Everybody's fine with that. And so in this moment, if he chooses to uphold his religious duty to let her be stoned and to follow what they're trying to test him in, now he might get the capital punishment from the Roman Empire. He's got stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's a brilliant test because now he's got to decide what, what am I going to do? Am I going to upset? Which one am I going to upset? I'm either going to upset the religious and be rejected or I'm going to upset the Roman Empire and be rejected. Which one do I do? It's a great test. And then this woman, then a little bit of story of her. We don't know her story. We don't know what's going on, but what we do know is that um, based on the customs, the way they interpreted the Old Testament, there had to be two witnesses to take place. Two witnesses had to see this. In the very act, they said, two witnesses. It's really uncommon for a woman to be stoned to death because you had to have two, women, two, uh, two witnesses to catch them in the act, right? It couldn't just be one, couldn't just be the lover, couldn't just be the adulterer. Had to be two witnesses caught in the act. So this woman had to have been betrayed by at least two people. They, it sounds like they set her up. Right? I don't know how any other way to, for it to play out. Whoever set her up, I imagine she was probably connected to. They knew her. This is not, like a, this is not a society where a, a woman can go get an apartment on her own and live her life. You can't just live an individual life really at all in their culture. But specifically, a woman can't just go get her own apartment and live her own life. You're living in community. You're living in a group. You're living with your family. There's multi-generational housing. They don't just live by themselves so that they can live a secret life and do whatever they want. It was probably someone in her family that partook in the betrayal. Because for them, if, you, if I allow you to continue in your sin and disobeying the law of Moses, then I'm partaking in your shame. I'm partaking in your guilt. If I don't stand up and stop this from happening, there were two people had to conspire against her. Maybe her family, maybe her friends, maybe the person she was committing adultery with. Guess who's not there? Guess who's not in this story? The man. Okay, listen, I don't know if y'all know science. I'm going to give you a little science lesson. It takes two people to have adultery. Some of y'all didn't know that, just so we're clear. Uh, ask your neighbor if you weren't sure about that. You can't commit adultery by yourself. It takes two people to commit adultery, and they bring the woman alone. 
Was the man like, hey, you know what? <laughs> I'll be a witness. Just don't, just don't kill me. Did the man abandon her too? Because he partook. He was a part of the story, and yet he's not a part of this story. She was betrayed. She was, she was utilized by the man. She was a part of the man's story, but the man jumped ship when it was going to cost him. Somebody in her family, somebody around her, someone that saw the story betrayed her in this moment. And Jesus now has this wrestle to partake. Do, do, I, do I put myself in the position? Because right now he's not, he's not in it, right? It, it, so far he stooped down, he wrote on the ground, and he does not, he acts like he doesn't hear, right? He, he can remove himself from that moment, right? There, once you step into the moment, there's a lot of risk. Once you step into the moment as judge, there's risk. Once you step into the moment as advocate, now there's risk, right? For us, we can defend people on social media. We can defend people. There's not much social risk to us. For them, there's literally more rejection and more risk. Like in the Middle East currently, you have advocates for you. There's still ways in which you have advocates and that advocate is taking a risk if they're going to be your advocate, not just a lawyer, an actual social advocate that's like, yeah, you that car wreck. I trust their character. I back them up. I support them. And if you do it wrong, it's going to cost you socially. And this is what Jesus is like. Nope. He has a moment where it's like, maybe he's not going to partake. Maybe he's not going to be the judge. Like he's like, this is not my, my problem. I came to tell you who I was. I'm not here to be the judge, jury, and executioner for this woman. That's not my judge. Go find your religious leaders. You've already rejected me. I don't know why you would bring her to me. You already told me that I wasn't a, a learned man. You already told me that I wasn't educated. Why would you bring her to me? Why do you think I'm educated? It seems like he has a moment. And yet Jesus, his response, when everybody else abandoned her, when everybody else didn't take the risk with her, Jesus steps into it. Because like I said before, there is our ability to harden our heart and back away when rejection happens. Our ability to not empathize with other people who are rejected. Our ability to, to fit in so that we don't get rejected. Or we can go the Jesus route where our rejection like instills in us a desire to not see somebody else be rejected. Our, our rejection fills the empathy cup to say, I, I, I experienced something I don't want to experience and I don't want to ever see anybody else experience that. And so Jesus, instead of continuing to ignore her abandonment and, and, and knowing the risks that he's about to step into, he, he jumps in with both feet. He decides, all right, I'll play your game. I'll play your game and I'll take the risk. I'll take the shame on me because that's my job. I'll take the empathetic route. I, I won't harden my heart. I won't back away. I'll take the risk of the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders. I'll step in and be an advocate for this woman that all of you have abandoned because I know what it's like to be rejected. I just experienced it over and over and over again. And I would rather be rejected with those who are rejected than stand strong with those who hate than to stand strong and be righteous with those who are hating on those that are rejected. So he steps in. And here's what, how he steps in, in uh, John chapter eight, verses seven and eight. So when they continued asking him, he raised up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. A very, very strange scene uh, for Jesus to be riding on the ground and seeming to kind of ignore the situation. So far, um, he doesn't seem to acknowledge her. He doesn't seem like he's even looked her way yet. He's only acknowledged them. He's only really looked up to, to look at the crowds. There's a massive crowd surrounding her and he's only really looked up to acknowledge them. He's maybe stood up and said, all right, well, like he's been riding. We don't know what he's riding. He's riding on the ground and he stands up. And he's like, well, whoever you've got no sin, go ahead. You, you can do it. And then goes back to riding. 
such a weird response, you know, such a strange response to stand up and then just go right back to writing on the ground. And what I found out this week is a question that blew my mind. I've read this story and heard this story preached about my whole life and never thought this question. I love when that happens. We're like, it's such a simple question. What he's writing is what we all debate about. I don't know what he's writing. We can't prove what he's writing. Every theologian, every commentator has a belief on what they think he's writing. It's a fun debate. It's a fun discussion. But the fact that he's writing is the question we don't ask. Like, I was like, wait, what? That he's writing? Oh, oh, he can write. They just got done accusing him of not being educated. They just got done accusing him of telling him he don't know nothing. And he is surrounded by scribes who are good at writing. The scribes and the Pharisees, there were a few Pharisees that could write, but the majority of the people can't read and write. The, the, the Pharisees as a group more or less memorized scripture, didn't write it down. The scribes, that was their job to write stuff down. There would usually be like one person in the town that was meant to transcribe things. There was like one person per town who could actually read and write. And Jesus, the one who they're like, ah, you're, you don't know nothing. You're uneducated, stoops down and writes. And listen, I don't know, I don't know Greek at all. Like Greek is Greek to me, literally. Uh, I, like I, I've, I've studied a little bit of Hebrew, but I just have to trust the, the, the commentators and arguments on, on Greek. And what they, what they say is that the word that he's talking about for writing is like very specific to writing words. It's not like drawing a picture, which would be really funny if he was like in there doodling. He was like drawing a house, the family. And like, hey, is this is a dolphin, you guys. Did you see the dolphin? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what's happening, Jesus? But no, it seems like he's actually like writing words. We don't know, we don't know what he's writing, but it seems like he's, he's educated enough to be writing words, which would have blown the minds of the Pharisees. Like, ooh, half the, or blown the minds of the scribes because half the Pharisees couldn't even read it. They're like, what's he, what's he, hey, hey, what is he writing? Like, we, again, there's all kinds of debate. A lot of people think that he was writing their sins down, like writing their names down and writing their sins down, which again, half of them can't read. So it'd have been like, I see my name, but I don't know what you said after that. You know, like, so it's a really interesting scene. You know, there's a lot of like ideas of like, I saw you, I saw you smoking behind the bleachers. So just, just so you know, I caught you. I saw what you did with your middle finger. I saw it. And they're like, Oh, he knows, he knows about that. I should, I'm going to go. I don't know. I don't know what he's writing, but that he's writing is shocking. The illusion, the, the, the like imagery that I have is, is another time where God's hand writes. And I listened to a commentator that talked about this this week too. There's another moment in scripture where God, God's hand writes. So this is a moment where Jesus kneels down and he writes and it's God's hand writing. And there's a moment in, in the book of Daniel where, where God's hand writes, where God sends a hand to write on the wall. And the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and his family had, had really kind of gone astray and started to treat the Jewish people poorly and really started to utilize the things that were meant for the temple in a really sacrilegious way. And then all of a sudden in the midst of their partying and drinking and stuff, they just, everything stops and they see writing on the wall and they have no idea what it says. They're like, Ooh, what does this mean? So they look and they look and they find Daniel and they get uh, Daniel. Daniel come tell us what it means. There's four words written on the wall and he has to interpret what these words imply or mean to them. And one of the sentences he writes on that wall, the hand of God writing on the wall and the hand of God is now writing in the dirt. One of the sentences he, he, he explains to them is you have been weighed on the scales and you have been found wanting. You have been weighed on the scale. Your, your sins have been measured and you don't live up. And, and like th their life gets taken that night because they have their sins weighed by the hand of God. And he says, you have been found wanting. And I wonder if they have that imagery in their head or if he's writing similar words that they can see and be like, no, no, he's writing Daniel. 
He's writing our, our, we've been weighed on the scales and we've been found wanting. This is a dangerous moment. The guy who we thought couldn't write is now writing and it might be the hand of God writing for us. Let's, uh, let's jump ship. Something gets them and they jump ship. And now it's just Jesus and the woman. He takes the risk. He takes the moment to be rejected with her. And he's left there alone with the woman. And here's what it says in verse 10. It says in John 8, verse 10. One, two, three, go. Ah, see how he did there? We're on cue. We're on cue. All right. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. All right, we're going to leave these verses up for a little bit. One of the things I found interesting this week is that the woman is standing. I'd always had this picture of her being like thrown in front of Jesus and being at his feet. Um, but she's standing. Like the, the previous verses tell us she's standing up. And so Jesus is kneeling down with the woman standing in the middle of the crowd and he's writing. And it, it, it seems like he's acting like he can't even hear the first time he writes. He's just drawing, not the dolphin. I don't know what he's drawing. We don't know what he's drawing. We think he's writing words. He's writing. And it seems like they have to keep talking to him like, hey, are you going to deal with this? We got, a, we got a question for you. We got a test for you. You're going to answer this. And he just keeps drawing. He just keeps writing words. And then he stands up and there's no moment where we can tell he looks at the woman. He's not, this is the moment he looks at her, but the first time he looks at the crowd and he's like, hey, you guys, whichever you has no sin, go ahead, go ahead and throw the, the, the stone first. And then he gets back down and starts drawing. And if you're the woman standing there, she's standing. Thanks. Thanks. What? Oh, this is, this is going to be great. I'm about to get hit with a rock, a bunch of rocks. I'm dead. I'm a dead man, woman. And she's just standing there in the middle of a crowd of all the people that hate her. Maybe the people that she thought was her family, maybe the community she grew up with, all of them looking down on her. Like, she's like, I, I know you, you were at my house. You were my friend. You were my cousin. All of you do whatever. I, I don't know what her, her emotions are like, but I can't imagine like, maybe she's done. Maybe she's like, let's just get this over with. I'm a nobody anyways. They want to kill me anyways. Let's just get this over with. And I don't know if she sees them walking away. I don't know what her emotions are, but what I do know is Jesus was writing, seeming to ignore because he doesn't notice that they've walked away. He's writing enough to not pay attention to the people walking away. And then he looks up and realizes no one else is there and raises up. And I think this is the moment he looks her in the eyes. No one else is there. This is a moment where no one else is around. This is a moment, it's just me and you. I'm gonna to talk to you, not for show. This isn't for everybody else because the crowd's gone. Everybody left. It's just him and her and he stands up. And I, I think it's the first time he acknowledges her in scripture. And I believe it's the first time he looks at her. And I think he looks her in the eyes. It's like, who, who's here to condemn you? Because I'm not. That's, not. that's not what I'm here for. The, the man that they wanted to use as an excuse to, to see her die is like, that's not, that's not what I'm about. And I think in the moment, in that moment, she can feel that he is near the brokenhearted, not, not just in proximity, but in heartbeat. And I think she can feel in that moment that like, I've, I've been rejected like you. Like I just saw my brothers hate on me, the ones that I grew up with the ones that I try to help and train and learn and help educate them and help teach them, help show them the craft of our father. I, I, I helped them, I supported them and they rejected me. I know what it's like to have people abandon you and I'm not here to abandon you. See, last week I talked about how Jesus is not safe. 
because it's all, we're all going to, none of us get out of this thing alive. He's not safe physically, but today I need you to know he is safe emotionally. He is safe spiritually because he's near the brokenhearted. He, he's feeling what you've gone through. He experienced every bit of it and, and he's not here for the show. He's not here to tell everybody else uh, about and, and use your life as a show to prove everything else. He just wants to be with you and let you know, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to, to use your life as a point to prove it to everybody else. I'm here because I feel what you feel. Like, I, I think Jesus, when we weep, he weeps. I think he experiences our life the way we experience it because he's near to the brokenhearted. And so when we're hurting, when we're lost, when we're confused, we don't understand. I don't think Jesus is like a generic, like uh, motivational poster. Like, hey, buck up. Just, just do it. You can just do better. Tomorrow's a new day. You know, the sun will come up tomorrow, tomorrow, right? Like that's Jesus's motivation. No, no, I think he's like with us. I think he's like weeping with us. I think he's in tears with us. I think he's as brokenhearted, if not more, because he knows the implication of the person who passed too soon, of the diagnosis, of the kids you lost, of the things that went on in your life that shouldn't have gone on. I think he knows the implication and he hurts as much, if not more than you do. I think he weeps with you. I think he's devastated by what's been done to you and the pain that you've experienced, the pain you're experiencing right now. And what I want you to get, the, the application for today, or at least the first one, is that we understand that Jesus is a safe place to land emotionally, that we understand that he loves us and we get the heart of God. Listen, I think, I think you can get all the rules right of scripture and get it all technically right and, and really miss the whole picture. And like, I think if you, if, you, if you get all the rules and miss the heart, I think you've missed everything. If you get the heartbeat of God and you understand him and miss out on a few rules, I think you'll be okay. And the heartbeat of God is near us when we're broken, near us when we're hurting, loving us while everybody else wants to reject us. He's like, no, 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 no. I, I caused this on myself. There's no way he can justify it. No way he'll be with me. No, no, no. She caused this on herself. She brought this on herself and Jesus still empathized with her. Jesus didn't, didn't cause it on himself, but he still empathizes with us when we do. So there's no excuse. He's not saying like, I'll be with you when it's done to you and it's not your fault. No, I'm with you when it's done to you and it's not your fault. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm with you when you did it to yourself. I'm with you when you caused all your pain, all your heartache, when you hurt everybody else around you and you gave everybody an excuse to run from you. He's like, you can't give me an excuse. I don't run. I'm a God who doesn't run. And see, every other religion wants to paint a picture of how we get to God. And Christianity paints a religion of how God got to us. And in this moment, he's saying to us, like, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here for you. Like the whole, the whole moment when Jesus is born, they call him Emmanuel, which is like three Hebrew words mushed together, which is God with us. That's who Jesus is, God with us. He's with you. He's with you in the hard moments. He's with you in the brokenheartedness. He's with us. He's for us. He's got more for us. And so get this heartbeat. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. This isn't for anybody else. He's not needing the crowds to see his standard of sin. He doesn't need to put on a show to be like, well, I don't want to condone your sin. I don't want people to think I let you get away with it. So I got to announce to everybody, this is sin, everybody. Just so you know, I was not cool with what she did, even though I love her. This was just for him and her. No one else was around. He said, go and sin no more because we teach a lot. God hates sin, but it's because God hates sin for us because of what it does to us. 
In this moment, he says, go and sin no more, not to set a standard, not as a rule, but to say, please don't do this again. I don't want to see you hurt like this. I don't want to see you hurt other people. I don't want to see you in this plane, in this place again. Go and sin no more. The reason God's wrath is against sin is because of what it does to the people he loves. And he's saying, go and sin no more because I love you right where you're at. And I don't want to ever see you in this place again. He's a safe place. He doesn't need to put on a show to prove his standards and his rules and his regulations. But he does want to say, don't, don't do it again. Because if you catch the heart of God, you know, I don't want to do it again. Not because of following the rules, but because I caught the heartbeat of my father who loves me and wants more for me. I learned to trust him. I learned to trust that his ways are better than my ways. I learned to trust that he was with me when I was heartbroken, when I was crying, when I was weeping, when everything else seemed lost, when it was dark, when I was lonely, he was with me. And I felt him and I experienced him and I know what it's like to have him near me. So I will follow him, not to prove anything to anybody else, but because I saw that he was good. And when he looked me in the eyes, when he looked me in the eyes, he saw me, not for show, me and all the pain, all the brokenness, and he empathized with me. And that's how God experiences you. He is near the brokenhearted. The second challenge is this. First challenge is that you accept that he's safe emotionally, that he's here for you, that he loves you, that he sent his son for you, that you can trust him because he is good and he understands. And I can't tell you all the reasons, all the bad stuff happens. All I know is he doesn't like it and he's there with you in the midst. And the second thing that I want you to maybe learn from that is that if he uses rejection that way, and if he empathizes in that way, shouldn't we? If that's how he loves people, he'll accept rejection with people who are rejected over being right with the crowd. Shouldn't we be like that? Like, shouldn't we be a church that is always a safe spot? Yeah, for sure. At some point, we're going to say, go and sin no more. At some point, we're going to say, don't hurt yourself anymore. At some point, we're going to say, stop. This is hurting you. It's killing your family. But first, but before we ever get to go and sin no more, let's start with, I see you. I love you. And this is a safe spot. This is a spot where you can be loved. This is a spot where you can belong before you believe. This is a spot where we'll do anything short of sin to reach people who don't know Christ because that's what Jesus did. Went out and found the lost and the hurting and said, come in, this is safe. This is a spot where I love you. And yes, when I tell you to sin no more, it's not because I care about the rules, it's because I care about you. Stop hurting yourself. Trust me and my ways. Believe in me. Find that this is a safe spot. Shouldn't the church be safe before it's right? Shouldn't the church be loving before it gets all the rules correct? Shouldn't we be able to look them in the eyes, not for the show, not for the social media posts, not to prove that we're right, but because we love them enough to say, I'll risk it and tell you this is hurting you. Please stop. I love you enough to tell you to stop. I don't care what everybody else thinks. The world can think we're condoning any behavior they want. That's up to them. That's not our job. We're not here for a show. We're here to love. So that we can get to a spot where we love people deep enough to go, oh, don't do that no more. I love you enough. You know I love you. Please don't do that. And if you disagree with me, it's okay. I'll still love you, but I'm still telling you, please stop doing the thing that's hurting you and the people around you. If, if that's how he responds to rejection, shouldn't we love like that? Care like that? I'd rather love than be right. I'd rather be like Jesus than let everybody else think I'm like Jesus. And love people not for the show, not so that everybody can know that I'm right or correct, but look them in the eyes and care about them more than I care about what everybody else thinks. Shouldn't we be like that? Let's pray. 
so glad you joined us for today's message. Our prayer is that God got the message you needed most today. If you're still here joining us and you're looking for an opportunity to connect to the Brick Church through giving, you can do that by texting the word BRICK to 45888. That's the word BRICK to 45888. The first time you do that, it's going to send you a link, give you the opportunity to connect that number to a credit card, debit card, or bank account. And as you connect with us and we partner together to reach people, we pray that God blesses you in your giving.